0: So we've been in this Leviticus series, and I'm going to highlight a few things for you today. And really, we're going to cover six chapters. Everybody say, oh, no. (laughs) Okay, but if you know me, you know that I tend not to be long-winded. So we're going to breeze through a few highlights in some of these chapters. And then I want to get to something that I think is really important for us to talk about today in chapter 16. So this morning in Leviticus 10, uh, we're going to look at, and you can just take a note for yourself, we're going to look at what it, what it says there. It basically is saying, without us reading a massive portion of the scripture, it talks about the priest's portion of the offerings that are brought. If you've been with us or listened to the series or read some of Leviticus, there are different offerings that are given at different times, and some of them include a a portion of the actual animal that's being sacrificed given to the priest. So there's order and instructions given to the people to be able to sustain the priesthood in those days. Because they didn't have any other job. They were completely focused on worshiping the Lord, serving the Lord, and all that stuff. So the people's offerings, essentially, supplemented and helped. But some priests got greedy. And if you've seen news out of the Christian world, even recently, there are those who have been in church leadership who have gotten greedy. And so Leviticus 10 actually gives us some instructions about not being greedy when it comes to the priests and that only certain portions get allotted to the priests. There's a reason that we should think that this is important. It's still important for us today. Some priests got greedy though in, Le- in later chapters and when they did that, they started taking for themselves what only and truly belonged to God. So in this moment, you should realize and recognize I'm not talking about me in that idea of a priest or a pastor or leader of a church. But remember what we said, the New Testament has now become the testament that we focus our strength on because we see that Jesus has culminated a lot of those things from the Old Testament. And in fact, so much so, he says that every believer in First Peter, every one of you is a priest holy unto God. So each of us have the same bearing of responsibility that's listed in Leviticus 10 when it says that we should have a certain portion, but we should also give God what's due him. In 1 Samuel 2 verse 12, if you're taking notes and you just want to jot that down, you could look at the story later. It says this, Now the sons of Eli, Eli was a priest in those days and also a judge over the, the nation of Israel. It says they were worthless men. I don't know how you get described behind closed doors, but let's hope nobody ever has to say, man, she's worthless, or man, he's worthless. The word of God says that the sons of Eli who were in the priesthood were worthless men. Worthless meaning having no value. It says they did not know the Lord, or another version says they had no regard for the Lord. So they actually began stealing when people would bring the offering and the sacrifice up. They actually began saying, oh, no, 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 no. don't do it that way. Give me that good piece. I'm going to take that for myself. They began to do that. And God makes an example out of their disobedience. Somebody say, oh, me. I don't want God to make an example out of me and my disobedience, but we have this in the word of God because we see that their pride and their disobedience caused them to sin against God. You might remember God raising up a little boy named Samuel who was not in the priesthood. The reason God raised up that little boy Samuel who heard the voice of the Lord at night and he's serving in the house of the Lord, God blessed Hannah to be able to be pregnant with him even though she could never bear children before. God answered her prayer. Eli is now leading this little boy Samuel to become the heir of the priesthood because God is getting rid of Eli's two sons who have disobeyed. So when we think about Samuel, we think, oh, that's really cool. It's a story about a kid who put his faith in God, who listened to the voice of God. You got to understand there's a plan and something that God has been moving in motion from before the time that he was born. So for you and I, I have that same hope and that same anchor in my own faith that God is not surprised by the things that we suffer. He's not surprised by the things we have to endure. He He also doesn't approve of all of those things. That's not to say that God gave you those hurts or gave you those things to walk through, but it is for us to understand God is sovereign in the midst of all of our life in every season in every season. So God raises up this little boy, Samuel, to replace Eli's sons. And in an act of judgment, which we're basing this out of Leviticus 10, God allows both of Eli's sons to be killed in a battle on the same day. So the lesson that we learn from Leviticus chapter 10 is this, don't take what belongs to God. So then I've got to have a practical application for myself. When I look in Leviticus, if I'm bored reading about a high priest wearing funny clothes and them cutting animals up and putting them on an altar, and I'm like, how does this even apply to me today? I can think about this. Don't take what belongs to God. Well, here's the deal. What belongs to God? Everything. The contents or the lack thereof of your bank account. Your time. Your time. The skill, the, the, the gifts that God has given you, whether you're introverted, extroverted, whether you can help administratively, whether you can, whether you're a doer or a planner, God has put those things in you for his purpose, for his glory. So don't take what belongs to God. We should worship him in the way that we live. So in Leviticus chapter 11, then we have the description of categories of Clean and unclean animals. Now, y'all, this is boring stuff. Okay. If we start parsing and looking through all of this stuff, but here's the deal. There is not something boring in here. There is something that's truthful for us. The unclean animals and the clean that are allowed and not allowed for daily food, the food laws are partially cultural preference. You, I want you to hear me because I know that you might have heard about Jews not eating pork or bacon, or you might have heard about somebody doing some sort of Daniel fast that they found in the Bible, or you've heard about these different things of, oh, well, in the Garden of Eden, they were obviously vegan, and that's why I'm vegan today. Okay, so listen to me when I say this. Leviticus 11 is partially their culture of the day. It's, it's that preference. It's partially theological and it's partially ritual based. You've got to understand they're not the only people on the earth that are worshiping a God. There are others that are known for what they sacrifice. In fact, that's why God is so big on don't get married and hitched up with one of those people from those other places because they'll lead you astray to worship their own God. But they had sacrifices in place. They had other things that they did. They even sacrificed children to the God Molech that are, that we see in scripture. And we can bear that out in historical records as well, where you see them throwing them over the cliffs into flames. I mean, they really, it was sick and twisted, but God had a different way and the people knew that. In fact, they knew and understood something that was really important for us to understand. Since they were identified by God, they needed to be different than those around them. Because the one true God is not like the other gods that are being worshipped. So their understanding of being identified by God, when the people from the other nations of the world would see them, when they would look and see an ancient Israelite in those days, they didn't, the Israelites, didn't want there to be any inconsistency. The same thing should be true of believers today. We're marked by him. So that means our lives should be led in such a way that we look like him, like we're his own. If you brought my two daughters, my beautiful, lovely daughters onto this stage, they are unmistakably mine, bless their hearts, in behavior, and thank God they got their their mama's beautiful looks. But you can definitely see in facial features and otherwise, you know that they're mine. I didn't have to teach my daughters certain things and they still behave like me. Right? I mean, you're, you're laughing. Cause, shush, my wife's on the front row. Don't get too loud. Um, but the, tr- the truth of the matter is Madeline, I'll give you the example. She's an early riser. She can sleep on a little bit of sleep. Well, that is a buzzkill for a parent because I don't want her staying up late and getting up early. That just robs me of my other time. Right? All right. right, we'll strike that from the record. That was me venting to the church for a minute. But then I think to myself, I was just like that when I was a kid. The moment the sun wakes, I'm awake. I don't lay in bed. I don't, I just go. I get out of bed and I run. And Madeline does the same thing. She's not in my bedroom to have ever seen me wake up. Yet she does the same thing because she's marked by me. You are marked by the master and the Lord, the creator of all the universe, the one who flung the stars into their homes. He designed you, and you are marked by him. The question is, when people see us, do they see the mark of God in us and in our lives? So let me be clear, though. The food laws that were then are not meant for us today because they were cultural to that day and they were theologically isolated to what they understood in the sacrificial system. They had to do with the tabernacle and then the temple and we no longer have that system. I am here to preach the Bible to you. That's what we do every week and we don't get scared of the weird parts. We dive right in and we look at the whole of scripture. But I will tell you this, unequivocally, There is no coherent argument that can be made about following that ancient diet today. If you choose to, that's what we call a preference. (laughs) So, as for me and my house, pass the bacon, praise God. Okay? So... Besides, why would we want to revert back to a system when Acts chapter 10 very clearly states? If you read that, there's a very interesting portion of scripture when God gives a vision which... In in the reading is sort of a daydream. It seems as if it's an actual 3D thing that's happening. Peter is sitting there and a sheet comes down a big blanket with animals of all different types in it. And he's told to eat. And he's like, I can't pick one of these because these are unclean. God is telling him and showing him, I've made everything pure and clean. We don't live by that system in that way any longer. We're not bound by geography or ethnicity or culture. Through the gospel, we as people of God have now become the temple of God. Amen? So what we do put in our body does matter, right? What we do eat and how we do that is important, but it is also for us to see that they had a preference and something that they understood back then that we now no longer are bound to, which is awesome because I love bacon. (laughs) So here's the deal. This is what I want to say to you as we preach through a book like Leviticus and as we really uncover some of the depth of the Bible. Don't find one verse of scripture about something and try to formulate a theology based on that one place. That's why you've got to read the whole thing. you got to get through the whole thing because then if you just got stuck in Leviticus, you'd never understand what Jesus did when he put away all of that stuff and said you don't have to deal with that anymore. But you still see in the New Testament there are some issues that are happening because there is food being sacrificed to other gods. And so Paul, even there, deals with that in the church and says, hey, here's a couple steps you should take. So we, we've got to pay attention when we read the Bible, amen? So Leviticus chapter 12 to 15 covers more ritual impurities. It talks about some really weird stuff like body fluids and skin diseases and infections. It talks about this because they have this idea, and especially in the um, sexual intimacy side of things, they had this idea of created order, meaning that everything that was done was in order to provide and care for life. And if something happened that didn't allow that, then there was things that had to happen before they could come back into the presence of God. If you had a skin disease, and many times it's labeled, leprosy but that wasn't just leprosy like we imagine today hansen's disease where skin is falling off it could be any sort of infection and those things were things that you had to go get checked out by the priest because he wanted to verify it was okay for you to come onto god's turf so chapters 12 through 15 if you ever want to be grossed out you can read those chapters but i do want to say something here really important We've said before, because we've talked about there's a difference too, you'll notice in 12 to 15 in those chapters. If a woman gives birth to a son, there's a different amount of days that she is impure before she comes back to the temple or tabernacle. If she gives birth to a female, to a daughter, there's a different amount of days. So there's a disparity and people are like, wait, what, what does it matter? Why is one over the other? Listen, Again, you've got to understand they lived in a cultural mindset that influenced what's in the Bible. And I have to say this, you got to read the whole thing. Because I can say this without any doubt in my mind, that God is a true egalitarian. Now, you might say, whoa, pastor, bringing out the big guns. What is that word? Egalitarianism is the belief that all people are equal. God has had that from the beginning. Now that might step on some toes or it might aggravate some people who have some race bias or some whatever, but here's the deal. God says all people are equal from the first page to the last page. He's not a racist. He's not a misogynist. He's not sexist. He loves male and female. And so when we read chapters 12 to 15 and we think, well, why is he punishing the women or the men, babies over the da 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 No, you gotta read the whole thing. And you got to understand that God has always been saying the same thing. The Old Testament and the New Testament echo this truth. So God help us if we hold to racial prejudice or if there's misogyny or if there's misinjury, which is another thing that's developed. And uh, any of those things that discriminate, God doesn't do that. Even in the New Testament, he says, if you've come to Christ, you're no longer a Jew or a Gentile. You're no longer this or that. You're all mine. So we've got to understand that and hold to that. All right. That was fast, right? We've... Okay. Leviticus chapter 16. This is where we'll park for a few minutes today. Leviticus chapter 16. It covers something called the day of atonement. You might have heard this or seen this on a calendar before. You might have a Jewish friend. They call it Yom Kippur. This day of atonement is listed in Leviticus chapter 16, but it references back or harkens back to Leviticus 8 when they were preparing to use the tabernacle for the first time. Everything everywhere had to be clean. It had to be pure and ready to be used in service to God. So now they have, I guess if I could put it in like my, my language, your language for today, Leviticus 16 lays out them hitting a reset button to say one day a year, we're going to clean this place up all over again. Uh, there's going to be a lot of blood spilled and a lot of animals and all that kind of stuff, but we are going to make this thing right because we don't know. Maybe the priest sinned at some point this year and didn't confess it. Maybe somebody came in with an impurity and they came through the, the tabernacle tent gates and when they got in there, they brought impurity into the place of God. Here's the deal. Impurity does not belong in the presence of God. It didn't then, and it still does it now. And so it's an important Old Testament ritual, but it was about resetting things to the original state of what we would consider now ritual purity, or what we would say is holiness. It was making sure that everything was right again. We're not going to see specific sins mentioned or even the forgiveness of sins, but we are going to see ritual impurity being removed and destroyed. Remember when we talked through Leviticus chapter 4, we noticed that the blood from the decontamination offerings that were offered, that blood from the animal was never applied to the people for their sins. So I hope that you've been like recalibrating your thoughts about the Old Testament as we've gone through Leviticus, because it really is helpful for us to understand that. Those offerings were used to purify God's holy place. So in Leviticus 16 we basically see these Israelites hitting that reset button. Here's kind of what they thought. They thought, you know, if we don't hit this reset button, this is my my thought in reading, and if we don't make absolutely sure once a year that everything's right, God will leave us. I want you to get this framework of how they thought into your own mind. The people in Egypt and the people in other nations went to a place and they worshiped a God. The people of Israel who were being delivered through the Red Sea out to the wilderness to get to a promised land were given a promise, an audible, verbal promise, a covenant by God that I will be with you. I will dwell with you. The Bible says that as they traveled, Probably the estimate is close to about a million, if not more. As they traveled through the wilderness, God led them literally. He directed them by day through the use of fire and clouds. It's incredible what God did in order to prove that he was with them. And they could look up literally and see God's still with us. But they lived in fear, and we talked about that recently. We all should have a healthy measure of actual fear. God can exercise judgment at any point for our disobedience and other things. Yes, Jesus came, and no, we don't have to you know, cower in fear in every moment, but we've got to understand he is the God of all. And as much as we say he's not the guy up there with the hammer ready to strike, because we know him to be a God of grace and forgiveness now, Back then, they thought, oh, we just saw two guys die at the tabernacle, so let's clean this place up again. Like, they're like really worried about this stuff. So you've got to understand really what was in their mind because it was the threat that God's presence would leave them. That same thought should be the thought that the Holy Spirit puts inside of your heart when there's the temptation to sin. Because God does not dwell in the presence of sin. In fact, he always casts it out. In fact, only bad things get cast out in the Bible. Demons get cast out. Something else gets cast out of the camp because it's, you know, sick or it's infirmed or whatever it may be. Nothing that's ever good gets cast out, okay? So we've got to think about this in terms of our own life, When we suffer temptation, when we endure and experience temptation, we've got to take hope from the word of God that tells us that he will be with us and that no temptation has overtaken you or will come against you, that he will not provide for you a way out. The question is, will we take it? (laughs) Because sometimes it's not fun to take it out, to take the way out. Sometimes it's fun to give in to sin. In fact, the Bible says that sin is fun for a season. But if you know what a season is defined as, it's got a starting point and an end. It's not gonna be fun forever. So we've gotta think in terms like that when we're thinking about the things that we struggle with in our own life. If we really want to have God's presence really dwell because it says the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives inside of me. And if I wanna keep him happy, right? Then I've gotta live holy, And I've got to steer clear of the things that would cause him to be dissatisfied with me. So they lived in this real fear of alienation, that if if there was something wrong there, physically speaking, then maybe God might actually decide to leave us. And we can't afford for him to leave us. Somebody say amen. We can't afford for him to leave us. So the Day of Atonement is still observed every year, but it had to be modified once the temple was destroyed. If you know a little bit about history, at some point after Jesus' death, the temple gets destroyed because of a coup, you could say, another government that's there. The temple gets destroyed, and then no longer do the Jewish people have a central temple to worship in. So they begin to really maximize the idea of small local places called synagogues. The ancient view of the Day of Atonement is a little different than what it is today in modern Judaism. Because of their lack of a central temple, atonement now for them is understood to be the sins of the people, which is actually a good transition. It's not just about sweeping and mopping and making sure everything looks good. It's about making sure that everything inside of this looks good. And so Leviticus chapter 16, I want to read with you verses 1 through 3. But I had to give you that background so you know what we're heading know where we're heading. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. We talked about them recently, Nadab and Abihu, who came and they didn't do, they did more than they were supposed to do, and God allowed them to be killed in front of the entire nation. Verse 2 of chapter 16 says this, And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. Let me help you, uh, just let me tell you this. What I'm reading from is the English Standard Version. You may read the NIV or King James or other versions, but for just being in sync That's what we've got on the screen for you. It says there that he may not die. In other words, God is telling Moses, hey, go tell your brother, he just can't come see me anytime he wants to. Like, I don't wanna keep killing people who draw near when they shouldn't be and when they're doing this stuff, they shouldn't be. So I'm gonna help you by showing you a better way. So this is what he says at the end of verse two. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Verse three, but in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering, which again was not necessarily sin, moral sin, but decontamination offering and a ram for a burnt offering, which would have been for a Thanksgiving offering to the Lord. So God is telling Moses to tell Aaron that he's not allowed to enter the holy place, the most holy place, whenever he wants. Verse 34, which we won't read, but you can look at later, tells us that it's only to be once a year. So God begins to describe what Aaron's gotta do in order to get into the holy of holies where God's presence is to be experienced. In verse two, it says this, I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Now, if you're like me, and some, how many of you have ever been guilty of reading fast through Scripture? <laughs> like, oh, I'm going to get this whole chapter done today in 45 seconds. You know, like, whatever it is, because you're short on time, or maybe it's some content where you're like, oh, what does this have to do with anything? And so you're just kind of like skimming or whatever. Don't do that, because everything really is important. The Hebrew word in verse 2 that says, I will appear, literally means a visible appearance. Now, this is something interesting. It's related to other places in scripture that uses the same Hebrew term. And here's what I'm, hopefully I'll jog your memory with these. In Genesis chapter 12, it says, the word of the Lord appeared to a man named Abram. The word, the word of the Lord, it's talking about a being physically presenting itself before the man previously known as Abram when he receives the promise that he'll have a son and later his name will be Abraham. It's also used, the same term is used of what we see in scripture as the angel of the Lord. In Exodus chapter 3, it says the angel of the Lord appeared in the burning bush. That wasn't just, you know... (laughs) I hate to make it so casual, but it's not like, you know, Moses took something that day and was hallucinating. Okay. He, he saw something in the burning bush. It was appearing to him and a voice came out of it. In Judges chapter six, verse 12, the Bible tells us that Gideon has an experience with the angel of the Lord appearing to him. This angel is not the angel that you hear about being called Michael or uh, any of the other ones that are given names in scripture. This angel of the Lord is different. It is an appearance of God. Theologians actually are pretty in sync on this idea that it's the pre-incarnate Christ, that it's actually God in flesh appearing in human form in order to show himself to them. Wouldn't that seal the deal for you in your faith if you got an actual visible image or picture of God? The same thing happens with Samson's parents in Judges chapter 13. So in all of these places, the same word is used talking about a visible appearance. It's very possible It's very possible that what we have here when we look at the verse 2 is that on this one day a year when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies behind the veil, he would see God in human likeness seated on the mercy seat with his feet resting on the Ark of the Covenant. Now you say, Pastor, are you grasping at straws there? No, no. The book of Psalms actually talks about the Ark of the Covenant being the footstool of God. And he's physically appearing in the Holy of Holies. That's just really cool. That's really awesome when you think about the fact that God comes to the place that's prepared for him. He'll always show up. That's why we encourage you to worship, not just here in this room. Worship at at your job. Worship in a closet. I don't care where you go. Worship in your car. Talk to God. Develop your relationship with him because in all of that, he is preparing the... You don't even have to do all the work. You do have to do some of the work. you got to get the sin out. You've got to make corrections in your life. You've got to do that stuff. But the Holy Spirit will empower you to do that so that God can truly take up what he's always wanted. A habitation with his people. He's always, from the very beginning in Genesis, he's been trying to hang with us. We screwed it up back then, but he's going to rectify it. It's going to be culminated. If you read through Revelation, he's going to get his wish finally because all his family is going to be gathered to him forever So God comes to the place that's prepared for him. So it really may have been that during this time of year, the high priest might actually have seen something that theologians call a theophany, which would be a visible appearance of God in human form because he appears in the cloud. It doesn't say he appears as the cloud. It says he appears in the cloud over the mercy seat. Here's another example of how that plays out. You've heard it said before about Jesus' baptism. If I asked you for the details, many of us in this room can say a voice shouted out of heaven, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, and everyone thinks the Holy Spirit descended as a dove. No, the Holy Spirit cannot be captured in the size of a four-pound bird. Okay? Okay. The the Bible actually says, and it came as if it looked like, okay? So it's the same understanding that we have in another place in scripture. It's not as the cloud or as the dove. It's in the cloud, amen? Verse four and five tell us that the high priest would only wear linen for this ritual. Here's a point about this. There's nothing fancy He was stripped of all signs of his status. If you're listening today with spiritual ears and insight, you understand the significance of this being far deeper than what you wear. We're all dressed down in God's presence. There's no pretension. There's no decoration. There's no need for it. It's plain and simple. It's authentic. There's no reason to put on a show. We think there's a reason to put on a show so others can see that. But when we do that... Jesus condemns those people all the time. They were the uber religious people called the Pharisees, who when they came to church, well, I thank God that I am here today. You know, that kind of stuff doesn't fly in God's presence. He doesn't enjoy that. In fact, He detests that. He wants real, plain, simple, authentic. That's what we try to do here. That's why I might make some people sad. I don't wear a three piece suit. I don't think I'll ever pastor a church, Lord, please don't, that will require me to wear a three-piece suit. Because when you see me in Clinton shopping at Walmart, this is what I look like. I'm a real guy and so are you. You're real people. And we try, even in that way, we try to make it understandable that it's not about what you wear. It's not about if you sing loud or whatever. It's not about that stuff. God wants your heart authentically. Verse seven through 10. Let's read this. This is where it gets really interesting. It says, Then he shall take the two goats, which 4 to 6 tell us about them choosing two goats. And verse 7, it says, The two goats, and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots. I don't want to insult your intelligence, but I also want to make sure that everybody else is on the same level. The casting of lots would have been something like a lottery straws in a in a can, one is the shortest one, everybody picks one, or one is longer than the others. That was a, a, it would have been by chance, but God's sovereignty is still being seen even in this. Somebody ought to receive that in their spirit today. It doesn't matter what your life situation looks like or the chance encounter that you've had or the issue that you face. God is sovereign over all of that. And if you believe it, tell your face, you know, if you, if you believe it, you ought to get excited about that because we have a hope that's anchored in the God of all creation that even in the midst of all of that chance, God can still get his way and he'll still protect his people. He'll still carry them through, man, some good stuff in the weird stuff. So verse eight says this, and Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Notice there's a capital A there. Verse nine, and Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. Verse 10, but the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel, again, capital A, it's a proper noun, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Three times a personal pronoun is showing up, the name of a being. The goat for Azazel that wasn't sacrificed... It was left alive, but sent outside of the camp was for them to see in a visual way that impurity was being removed out of God's turf. It's being sent out. So the goat was sent away from sacred space into the wilderness, which was according to their understanding, the domain of Azazel. God's plan has always been to dwell with his people. Impurity has to be driven out of the camp and away from the presence of God, and the presence of his people. Because God and his people are holy. Yes. But you're probably wondering, what? Who is Azazel? What is this character? Some translations, and I don't know what's in your hand, or what's in your, on your shelf at home that you read from, some translators have chosen to use the term scapegoat. In fact, we we have that understanding, even like in Wall Street and a news article, that guy was the scapegoat. He took the fall for everybody. We use that understanding. Here's the deal, though. They do that rather than using the proper name for a being, probably because they're a little scared (laughs) to handle it. But the reason behind it is simple. If you dissect the Hebrew word that's used there, you can get this understanding, the goat that goes away. But it's not like that in the actual text that's written on scrolls. It's written together with a proper noun. So the original Hebrew gives clearly two proper names, Yahweh, the Lord, one goat for the Lord, and one for Azazel, and his name shows up again later in verse 26, which we're not going to read today. But in early Jewish tradition, Azazel is regarded as the name of a demon. You say, why is... Why are God's people giving a sacrifice to a demon? They're not, because they're sending out the impurity from the presence of God to the place where all impurity rests, which is that domain out there. This is stated in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in other ancient Jewish books. I would encourage you to dig a little deeper if this interests you. Uh, it interested me, and I got caught in the <laughs> deep in the web trying to read blogs about it and all this stuff. But I came up for air, and here I am. In fact, in one scroll, which is a Qumran scroll, that's where they found, that's what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. In one scroll, Azazel is the leader of the angels that sinned in Genesis chapter 6 before the flood. So Azazel, in their understanding, was a hostile enemy and a demonic figure. We still have a hostile enemy who who does live in places where it's not God's turf. That's why we're all about building the kingdom, expanding it, inviting people to church, bringing those who are unchurched, unsaved, to get them to the place of becoming the family of God, because we want to multiply and make his kingdom large. But there is still an enemy who is hostile to all that is good and all that is God's. He seeks, the word of God says, the enemy to steal, to kill and to destroy. The people of God ought to have the Holy Spirit in their life on a daily basis. And we do, we just don't tap into him. The Bible says that you can't actually get saved without the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us. He stays with us. Jesus said, I'd be crazy. This is, you know, pastor's paraphrase. I'd be crazy to leave this world and not leave you with a companion because I physically can't stay here forever. I'm going to make sure the Father sends to you the comforter How many of you have ever needed comfort? He's an encourager. How many of you have ever needed encouragement? It says he's the spirit of truth. He'll let you know the things that are to come. He's a powerful force that resides in the people of God. And we've got to have him with us so that we can walk in the way that God wants us to. It's a powerful thought for us. The Israelites in the wilderness considered the days leading up to Noah's flood, days of great wickedness. This to them those Israelites, was the origin point of demons because when the Nephilim were killed in the flood, those are giants that it says the sons of God came and habitated with the women who were human women. When they died, the Jews in those days believed that their disembodied spirits became those wicked spirits we now call Demons now. This is their understanding. I'm I'm not laying out my opinion in this I'm just telling you what it is that lays in the background We don't have a lot in the specific details about who he is But there's actually a geographical location like a mountain that was named after Azazel That's used in other places and outside of the Bible But when we push past the surface, we can begin to understand what the Israelites were thinking the point is this the living goat is sent out alive with the impurity of the people outside of the camp to the turf where the people of the one true God aren't living. Worship team, would you join me? That goat is carrying, if you will, the impurities with it to the place where impurity belongs. That's why you don't keep trash in your house for very long. It stinks. You take it out to the trash can or you fight over whose day it is to take it out to the trash can, or whatever it is, but you get rid of the trash because it doesn't belong in your house anymore. It's been used, right? So the same understanding we have, impurity has no home in God's presence or in the lives of his people. So this is a symbolic expression that the people's impurities were being sent away because it doesn't belong, cast out. We find similar language in the New Testament. You'll hear, and I referenced it earlier in the message, that phrase being cast out is mentioned by Jesus. He says, it's, it, this is really interesting in connecting of the dots. Eli's sons were called worthless men. Jesus gives a parable and he talks about a worthless servant, one who has no value and no regard for God didn't do what he was supposed to do. And God, through Jesus, gives these words and says, you are to take him and bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. He's dark on the inside. He deserves to live where the darkness lives. One day, all sin and wickedness will be banished from God's presence and from his people. And we as believers ought to long for that day there are two different responses you could have. You could have in this moment, the Holy Spirit working inside of you to think about the lie you've told, the thing that you weren't honest about, the way you treated the person that you, you've you got them in your head, you know what's going on. Maybe it's something where you say, I'm a person of God, I'm a son or a daughter, and I've got something impure, this living where God's supposed to be living. And I, And today I wanna just open up that cabinet door and I want the Holy Spirit to take that thing and cast it out. And maybe that's you. For the rest of us, we need to have this hope that one day we'll be reunited with all the family of God and the people who have declared His name and said, I believe in Him. Those people will meet us and we'll be together. I remember my great-grandmother, Granny Esther, we called her. Whenever I'd stay over their house on Saturday night, sometimes me and my brother and some of the other grandkids, actually, she'd try to get all of us to stay there. Um, it wasn't as fun now that I remember it, <laughs> you know, you think going to grandma's is great, but we had a bedtime and we couldn't fool around too much and that kind of stuff. But it was, it was for her heart's sake that she got to take all of her grand, her great grandkids and take them to church. We went to this little Baptist church, cute little Baptist church in a in a town called Mockalee, Florida. And we'd go there for Bible, for, for Sunday school, Bible study, you could say, and then for kids' church and learn. But I can remember hearing her voice in the house throughout different times, whether it was a holiday visit or whatever. She always was singing. She wasn't singing the stuff you hear on the radio today. She wasn't, those are some catchy tunes, but she wasn't singing that. She was singing some of the hymns of old which they're really old now, but the hymns of old, even in those days. And I remember her singing this song and I thought about it in the the close of this message. It says this, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see, when I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, when he takes me by the hand and he leads me to the promised land. Because remember, we're still sojourning on this earth just like the Israelites had to go through the stuff they went to to get to a parcel of land. God's about to claim it all as his own and we're going to celebrate together in the promise being fulfilled. It says, what a day, glorious day that will be. There'll be no sorrows there, no more burdens to bear, no more sickness and no more pain, no more parting, no more goodbyes over there. And forever I will be with the one who died for me and i just imagine she's up there right now in the glory of the presence of god having fulfilled the thought of this song living in that glorious day and and if that glorious day captures our heart in some small way then don't shut up about it tell everybody you know that needs rescue minister whatever you can and I'm not you know I'm not the guy who says we gotta be a street preacher and a shout the Bible no but the relationships God has given you he's given you for a reason it's more than just to hang out or go shopping or go out on a double date it's for you to be the light of the world so that we can all experience this glorious day is coming is coming very soon I believe that with all of my heart so would you close your eyes with me I just want to ask you today, with your eyes closed, nobody should be looking around because this is a, a private moment, not a public one, but I really feel on my heart that there, there's the potential that someone here has been dealing with some sin in their heart and their life and they say, Pastor, I'm a believer, but I, I've got this issue that I can't really quite get over and I just need your, your prayer support today that the Holy Spirit would help me. If that's you, just lift up your hand. I'm not calling names. We're not going to introduce you and ask you, hey, what's the sin you're dealing with? Put them right down. Just lift up your hand wherever you are and put them down. Lord, I thank you for the hands, the honest hands that are raised that represent honest hearts. God, we know that you're the one who heals the heart, who can fix bitterness and pride and issues with anger. You can, You can do anything because nothing is impossible with you. So whatever temptations we face or have given into, God, I pray for strength in the hearts and the lives of the believers that have raised their hand today. In Jesus' name. Keep your eyes closed for just one more moment. I wanna ask you, those of you that are here and you say, you know, pastor, I haven't really been looking forward to that glorious day or it hasn't really captured my heart that way. I haven't really been sharing my faith with others. Would you just be honest and slip up your hand right now? Be real honest and slip up your hand right now. There's a few of us. You can put your hands right down. Your pastor's hand is going up because I think I'm not doing the, the good enough job I should be. I want to pray for us too before we close the service. And, and in just a moment, we're going to have Pastor Cameron and Ms. Becca come in and we're going to pray over them and speak words of blessing over them on their last Sunday with us. But I want us to stop for just a moment. And I want to pray for myself and for those that lifted their hands. Father, I pray by the grace of the one and only one who can save, that you would help us to be motivated to share our story and the story of hope that we have in the good news, the gospel that saves. I pray that you would challenge every believer in this place share their faith more and lord give us opportunity to do so help us not to fear failure but help us to continue to push on and push through help us to not be a bad example or to be ones that are aggressively you know giving overkill but help us not to be the shy ones who never bring it up either help us to be the perfect sons and daughters you've called us to be in sharing you with the world in jesus name i pray